I think if I had to graph the slope of my satisfaction <laughs> through, through medicine, it would sort of be like this, a steady increase, but then it would kind of like, like the COVID curve in the U.S., you know, kind of start Flattened going, vertically. Yeah, <laughs> sort of flattened vertically um, because you've just got more experience and you've got more, uh, you know, a greater sense of what it is that you're doing. Welcome back to Subcut, the medical-ish podcast where we talk about things that might be relevant to a high school student, medical student, doctor, or anyone just interested in medicine or the healthcare field. My name is Justin. I used to be a doctor. I'm Art Nahill. I am a doctor. I am Nick Sheckett. I am also a doctor. I'm Neil. I'm a fourth-year medical student. I'm Emma. I'm a third-year physiotherapy student. So as you've clearly noticed, uh, <laughs> we have plus two. Um, the hosts of the I Am Reasoning podcast, uh, which uh, a lot of you I know will already be listening to. And if you're not, you definitely should do so. Um, it was one of, actually, it's the only medical podcast that I actually listen to. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm really happy to have you two on as guests today because there's a lot of questions I've been wanting to ask you. There's a lot of, I've been wanting to do this podcast interview for a very long time. <laughs> I was wanting to get a few more uh, followers and likes on Facebook and things before we actually <laughs> did this, but you know, whatever, we'll roll with it. <laughs> um, so thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll run through a few questions. So we had a uh, we had a poll up on the Facebook group, Future Doctors of New Zealand, and there are some great questions on there. I think that you two would be good people to sort of answer these um, questions. And then at the end of this, we're, we're going to do an interview looking into both of their personal lives and things in a little bit more detail, which will be up on our YouTube. So if you want to... Um, check that out. Make sure to go on YouTube and uh, look for that video. The The first question we'll start with, uh, which had the most votes, was... Uh, so the question was, what, what's a question that you'd like to ask a doctor? And the first question was, what makes the job worth it, genuinely? It's a topic I personally don't talk about often because <laughs> I, I like to be the balance on the opinion to kind of <laughs> jade it out a bit more. But yeah... So what was the poll question again? What would you like to ask a doctor? Yeah, what would you like to ask a doctor? And the the question was... Well, it's not like, you know, what's this rash or something? I'm asking for a friend. It's right here. I don't know what that is. By the way, anyone who's not in a, in a medic, as soon as you enter into second year medical school, everyone you know thinks you can diagnose that rash. They don't realize that you will never be able to diagnose that rash. <laughs> You will learn so how true. to so yeah. true. You will learn how to use Dermnet and <laughs> refer to dermatology. Anyway, um, what, yeah. What are your thoughts? What What makes it worth it? What makes it genuinely worth it? Um, can I go first? I guess going yeah, yeah. this direction. Um, I think for me, uh, look, I've been a very, very, I've had a, a, a love hate relationship with medicine for a very long time. I was a very reluctant medical student. Um, I think I almost quit medical school about three or four times d during medical school. Um, but, um, you know, I realized after a while that um, even on my worst day, even when I've, I feel like I've, I've just hit the wall, I feel terrible, I can look back and I can think, you know, probably just by chance I've helped someone today. Um, the flip side of that is that you can also harm people. But um, fortunately, if you're working in the right environment, even on your worst day, you can do some good for people. Mm. And I guess it's harder to harm people 
really because the system is set up in with redundancy and yeah i mean you hope that there's a <laughs> lot of redundancy in the system <laughs> um but yeah i think you know it's a it's a, a calling it's a it's a um a, f- a field where um you you know the whole sort of raison d'etre is to help people mm. um, and some days despite yourself you can't help but do that okay so if i play um know like surgeon's advocate like you know th- on the flip side of that isn't isn't it aren't there lots of jobs that out there which will help people that are you know that different in a lot, a lot of different ways is what would it be about medicine or being a doctor specifically that is so unique in that in that aspect can i i was just going to say as i was listening to art answer the question to me, it comes down to the experience of the job. And there's different kinds of experience in the way that I see it. You can, there's the lived experience, there's the experience that you're experiencing in the moment, and then there's the remembered experience. So what do you remember of, or, you know, it, it's sort of the, um, what you experience in the moment versus what do you remember experiencing when you did it. And those give you very different uh, levels of satisfaction, I suppose, potentially. So you could be doing something in the moment that is very engaging, very entertaining, very um, satisfying, or it could be drudgery. But at the same time, when you remember what you accomplished, even if it was drudgery, it could end up being a very satisfying experience in memory. Right. So are you saying that medicine has a good balance of the two? Or are you saying that the remembered experience is... More? I think it does have a good balance, but it depends very much on what you do, what your activity is. You know, I can imagine, for example, if you love surgery mm. and you love being in the operating theater, uh, then the act of doing surgery in that moment is probably very exhilarating and very engaging. So that would be an example of lived experience that is worthwhile. Um, whereas if you think about someone that you helped or what you accomplished for someone after all the work that you did, even though it was painful and it was hard, that at the end of the day could be a very satisfying sensation. Mm. That's remembered experience. And I also think that to some extent, I would also depend highly on um, how much insight you can get from your experiences. And that would be largely person to person based as well. Um, because you can have some profound experiences, or at least I've seen some profound experiences, but on conversation with those people as well afterwards, um, they learned different things than I would have uh, from the same sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure. Do you, would you agree? Would you say the yeah, same? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, what you take away from an experience, by definition, is the remembered. It's the reflection. Mm. Uh, and that can, I think that can be very worthwhile, even though in the moment, it's like, I sort of think of it like when you're at the gym. I mean... Uh, Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> the CrossFit cult member. <laughs> no. No. We've all experienced it, right? It's just while you're doing it, it can be very painful. I mean, if, if, if the reason that you were experiencing the pain was something terrible, like, you know, cancer, for example, you wouldn't be a, a, as happy doing it, Right. And so there's something about the quality of the experience in the moment and, and what you bring, you know, your thoughts that you bring to it in the moment. But then the satisfaction of finishing is also, it's a different kind of experience. 
right? Mm. And it can be very satisfying. Mm. But Justin, getting back to your point, I'm not saying that medicine is is exclusively uh, the only pursuit that can help people. Mm-hmm, mm. But when you combine the fact that the goal is to help people with the cognitive challenge, the intellectual challenge of medicine, and the fact that you're dealing with, with the sort of the rawest elements of humanity at the same time, you're dealing with death and dying and suffering and grief and elation and joy and utter happiness, there aren't a whole lot of job descriptions that combine all of those elements. Mm, yeah. When did you have sort of have that perspective, kind of settle with that sort of perspective? Because in the early stages, it's hard to kind of see it that way. And I know a lot of, especially students who are just getting into clinical for not, not just getting into clinical because it's so novel and new, but sort of ending medical school, becoming house officers, that they don't have that perspective yet, mm. but also they're in that drudgery. You know, so where was that journey for you? I, I do think it takes a while. I mean, everyone's going to be very different. I, I, I interact with some young medical students now, and I think, wow, these kids are so wise. You know, they're so mature. And I was not like that you know, when I was at their stage. I was in it for the medicine and the, in a sense, the glory of the medicine. Like I I really wanted to be a doctor and I had this idea of doing heroic things and really making people better and curing things and saving people and, and the intellectual challenge and learning all of that stuff. That was, it was, that was the vocation. It wasn't until probably 10 years into practice, I think Mm. that I, after graduating, after graduating yeah Mm -hmm. after residency you know several years after residency where I finally something shifted and I thought what I'm doing here is very important for different reasons and in a sense it's a job what I do day to day is a job and it's a good job and it's a great job uh, but it's very important what I do and I I didn't really get the significance of or the importance of what I actually did until Mm. many years after Mm. Yeah, I would say that that was true for me as well. I think the I think the beginning of your career, you're you're trying not to kill yourself or others, yeah. um, and you know you're so invested in just trying to survive and not kill anyone mm. um, that you don't really have time to to sort of properly stand back and reflect mm-hmm. about the big overall picture of what it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know when you get a bit of experience and a bit of expertise under your belt, then you can begin to relax a little bit and look around and, and see the job for what it really is. And I think I've asked this to Justin in one of the previous episodes itself, but how long, I mean, it's just something to ponder about, not necessarily to answer specifically, but how long should one wait to find that deeper purpose or the deeper meaning as to why they come back in every day to do this challenging job with all the other obstacles that are involved around it? Because if it takes 10 years, um, that might seem like infinity for some people but but it's not it's not like i had it in my mind while i was in medical school or while i was in residency that there was a higher purpose that i was waiting to feel okay. and i was going to be unsatisfied until i felt it mm. all all the contrary i mean i was i was happy with the purpose that i had in that moment which was learn everything and you know work a lot and get a lot of practice and get good at what I was doing or try to get better at what I was doing, mm. that was satisfying enough in the moment. Yeah. And then looking back on it, 
I'm, you know, I realized that actually a lot of that stuff wasn't so important or crucial. Mm. It was much more important mm. to get the bigger picture. Mm. But Happiness do you, pursuit. yeah, do you feel like without the first part you wouldn't have been able to get to the second part or that you appreciate the second part more now because you know that that wasn't something that you had initially? You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I, I don't think you would end up staying in the career without accumulating the knowledge and the experience that you naturally will yeah. staying in the career. So I think that was just, in a sense, organic. Yeah. It, it was just going to happen as you went through practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, so, I mean, what if it was the flip side so that you weren't, you, you were very um, happy with and found that satisfaction during your kind of accumulation of that knowledge. So would the story be different for you if, if it wasn't like that, like you were kind of going through and it's, it didn't feel like you were getting that sense of satisfaction. And then would you, would you just kind of have had pushed through or? I think you, you know, this is, we're talking about years of your life, Mm. right? I mean, we're talking about, in my case, four years of undergrad, four years of medical school, five years of residency, and then practice. You know, if you add up all those years, you want to be satisfied while you're doing it because that's a big chunk, mm. right? So, I mean, I can't say what I, you know, what I would have done or what I would have felt if I wasn't getting enough of that satisfaction, but I, I would have been pretty unhappy because if I'm not getting the bigger picture, and I, I need to be satisfied with what I'm doing yeah. day to day. Mm. And, and it's not as though this is a binary proposition. Right. It's not as though you're miserable, 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 and then you hit the 10-year mark and all of a sudden everything's <laughs> great. Right? All along the way, you're winning little battles. You know, you're, you're getting the satisfaction of mastering material or skills, uh, helping people, but in a, you know, generally a smaller way. You're, you're getting the joy of working with colleagues who are like-minded, etc. Um, it's just that when you get that bit of experience, you can sort of stand back and look at the, at the larger picture and see the humanity of what you're doing. It's very difficult, I think, in the early stages of your career, but it doesn't mean to say that that's a joyless experience. Mm. Mm. Um, I think if you are joyless uh, through medical school and through your training, eh, that's, probably you know, that's not a where red you're flag, to probably. Be. <laughs> um, but it's certainly not binary. You know, I think, I think if I had to graph the slope of my satisfaction <laughs> through, through medicine, it would sort of be like this, a steady increase, but then it would kind of like like the COVID curve in the U.S., you know, kind of start flattened vertically, (laughs) sort of flattened vertically um, because you've just got more experience and you've got more, uh, you know, a greater sense of what it is that you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that was a great, that was one question. That was was great. That was great. Um, And uh, if you, if you're not watching on YouTube and you just missed an amazing finger graph that art just did, then <laughs> you're really getting a sub experience you know not the full uh. sub cut experience so <laughs> that's that's another issue so the next question uh we have is i guess in a way sort of related it says do doctors feel burnt out in their career i think we can generally say that there's a large percentage of burnout to differing degrees to um, i'll be surprised if someone didn't get at least an inkling of that at some point throughout their career so maybe the, the question should be more um, who gets burnt out for what reason and, and how do people generally deal with it in your experience or how have, how have you dealt with it in your own personal experiences? I mean, I think it depends on so many different 
factors, many of them personal, and so it's going to be a little bit different for every individual. Um, I can't personally say that I've had the experience of burnout to the point where I had to really reflect on the career or on the, on the work myself, but I have seen it. I've definitely seen it. And yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that play into it. Um, generally speaking, what I notice is that people who ha who don't have some, I mean, it's, it sounds cliche and it sounds sort of like common wisdom, but there's some truth to it. If you don't have an outlet, if you if you don't have a balance, and all you do is, you know, live in the hospital and think that, that you know, and identify fully with that work, uh, you're going to have diminished coping strategies for when, you know, you have other stuff going on. So do CrossFit. Yeah, CrossFit <laughs> is a good CrossFit is a good one. Our, our podcast, I think, you know, and I know it's medically related, but it's it's a creative outlet and it's. It's a huge balance, you know, it's a huge balance for yes. us. For me, it's been for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think burnout is a bit of a wastebasket term. You know, I'm not really sure what people mean when mm, they, when I they completely say burnout. Agree. Yeah. So there's certainly physical exhaustion, um, sort of psychological exhaustion, and a lot of literature is trying to tease apart those feelings about the profession that are due to exhaustion. So mm. anytime you're exhausted physically or emotionally or, or psychologically, your level of enjoyment for whatever you're doing is going, to, is going to go down dramatically. The other kind of burnout, I think the other thing that gets lumped in with burnout is what's been described as moral injury. Mm. So if you're working That's in a system where you feel like you're constantly compromising your principles and you're constantly being asked to give people treatment that is less than what you know they should have that's a, i think a little bit of a different problem so um I, I think if you know the 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 first kind of burnout is actually much much easier to deal with because you go to the gym you do whatever it, you know it is that you do to regenerate yourself and re recharge your batteries it's the second kind of burnout that's that's a lot harder. Um, and I think that that hits people a little bit later on in their career. That is so true. I really, really resonate with the idea of moral. I first heard about the term moral injury <laughs> from a Z-Dog. Yeah, that's that right. Where I you heard it for the yeah, first time. Did he yeah. coin that? I don't know if his... I, I've seen so, it in the literature. It's so, yeah. it's so, it's such a good way yeah. of describing it. Now, for people that aren't in the healthcare field, let's just elaborate a little bit. Where does that moral injury come from? Why... Why is that moral injury sort of inflicted? You know, people will think, well, you're a doctor, you're doing, you're, you're helping these people and you're doing all of that sort of thing. What is the reason to have something like moral injury? So, I mean, I think that there's probably many different sources. One example, maybe an example is a good way to, to talk about it. But one example I can think of is, you know, something that we deal with fairly regularly in the hospital, which is demand, you know, the, the, the volume of patients that we deal with just that alone and not having enough staff or enough workforce to cope with that demand in the way that you want to. So the principle is I want to do a good job. I want to do a comprehensive job. I want to give these patients and these families the time that they deserve and really think carefully about the best treatments for them and the best way forward for them. But there's too much volume and I need to work more efficiently and I need to do too much with too little time. Mm -hmm. 
and you're you're stuck in that loop and you have no choice but to move forward and there's the source of moral injury now you're providing care to stay afloat but actually it's not the care that you know is the right care when do you think you'd first start experiencing moral injury along at least the medical pathway? Because all I'm concerned about right now is learning the pathologies and the treatments and everything like that. But I think with house officers as well, a lot of it's just the menial, you know, the, the paperwork and everything like that. Is it around the registrar stage or when you're really... Because I've, I've often sort of realised now that I feel like you can only really be a doctor once you've hit that registrar threshold. Minimum. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will say that you're not a doctor until you're actually training well you know at least until a, a registrar a lot of people's yeah oh i would y your level of expertise as a house officer is light years ahead of the public uh, yeah. so I, I would disagree with that i think you're well and truly a doctor <laughs> okay. first year house officer you're doing very complex very complex thinking and, and very complex actions and tasks for your patients mm -hmm. um that only doctors can do but, but I can think of moral injury for the house officer. I, I, I've spoken to students, third and fourth year students um, and above, who experience moral injury. Um, usually they are in some ways more attuned to it than their older colleagues because they come in with this very idealized yes. picture of yep. what healthcare and medicine <laughs> should be, and they see things oftentimes falling far short. Mm. So I think it begins very, very early on. And just, you know, the reason why it's important to really know what we're talking about when we talk about burnout is because all of this sort of resilience training that you hear about and all of this kind of work that's being done to improve people's resilience, that works for the exhaustion bit of it, but it doesn't address the moral injury bit. And in fact, it can sometimes be used as a way to gaslight the whole issue of moral injury. It's a whole way of just pushing the problem onto you as the not a robust enough student or a doctor, mm. as opposed to looking at the entire system which is causing the moral injury to begin with. I'm just amazed that you know the term gaslight as a, <laughs> as a boomer. Hey, I'm hip. I'm hip. <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't, you can't. We don't say that anymore. <laughs> I'm <Okay>. sorry. <laughs> I do. See, it's retro. It's a retro <laughs> word, right? My, maybe my maybe it's coming is, back in. My son is into all this vintage clothing, so that's a vintage term. It's a vintage <laughs> word. We can bring it back uh, in. Uh, I think we'll bring it back. No, no, no. Just for you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you. But that, that's, a, that's such a good point. I mean, it can almost be borderline condescending if someone if you know your managerial staff says hey we got free coupons for like you know yoga or something and it's like that's not the problem right now you know i'm capable of self-care it's that when i yep. go back to work i'm yeah so mm. and that in itself is a is a form of moral injury to be it treated is. as though you are the problem when you know that you are not that yeah the problem is a much bigger system yeah i mean i i i have um you know friends and colleagues who were working in departments and they you know, identified these aspects of, of moral injury and interprofessionally or something like that. And they've been called into meetings to speak with, you know, managers where they are directly and explicitly told they are the problem mm -hmm. for reporting it. You know, I've given, I'm very clear when I give run feedback on what I think. I'm very, I'm very explicit about what I think is not good and not right. And I'll be called in to talk about feedback and they'll just sort of say, oh, well, like it's, you know, that seems like it's, your problem when there's it's just I, I don't know it's just it's um 
degrading sometimes to have that. Anyway, that that's a really great discussion. Um, next question that we had is, um, I guess uh, these, these seem a little bit um, easier to potentially answer. You know, people that get grossed out easily, can they still become a doctor? That was can me. That was actually, um, the way I actually met Neil was because of that question question basically i was like yeah like i've got the rank score like whatever that like the silly stuff just to get in but i was like i don't know if i can deal with the amount of blood because i'm the type of person that you know i fainted at my own blood test because the person showed me my blood in the tube i literally just passed out and i was like how am i supposed to be a doctor and neil at the time told me he's like that's just something you can deal with like watch youtube videos and stuff and i was like oh okay but it seems like a silly question but it was honestly a decider for me at the time yeah this this is four years ago neil with very little insight and and, and good helpful feedback for emma so anyway i don't have an answer to this i because i'm not someone that gets grossed out very easily so i'm not really sure how to answer that I don't think it's a problem, to be honest. I mean, really? it, it, you, you probably would choose, possibly there's certain career paths that you would steer away from, mm. but you can get used to a lot of stuff. I mean, you can get desensitized to a lot of stuff if that's okay. what you need to do. I mean, I still don't like, get, you know, I get a little bit vagal with bone marrow biopsies as you crunch through the, the periosteum. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends entirely on what you do. I mean, as a as a physician, uh, to be honest, I rarely see blood. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, I have to deal with a little bit of sputum and a little bit of vomit and some diarrhea occasionally. Mm. But as a as a physician, very little in the way of blood. But if if I was not desensitized to it, I, I certainly wouldn't think about doing general surgery if I yeah. know, if I fall down at the sight of blood. A, a common. Uh, thing that happens to us is the patients will say, I saved something for you, Doc, do you want to see it? <laughs> and it could be one of several <laughs> fluids. <laughs> and, and I still get grossed out by it. I mean, you know, if, if I could choose... Like, against my better choice, yeah, okay, I'll look at it. If I could choose to, to walk into a room where someone's having diarrhea and one where someone isn't, I would always choose the one where someone isn't. Fair um, enough. But, but, but you learn to deal with it. Yeah. Um, so. and, and then on the other hand, when they say that, it's like, you know what, I kind of, yeah, I think I do kind of want to see it as well. Like, <laughs> and, uh, say, hey, I just vomited it in the toilet. I didn't flush it for you though. You know, so you can see it and it's like, do you want to have a look? And it's like, no, but I probably should. You know, exactly. like, well, you know one of those like, bleeding in there <laughs> and you look at it. Uh, and you get just, information, yeah, but you really I, don't want to look at it. I can it. say this because my wife is a nurse, but I usually say, well, I'll get the nurse to have a look at it. Oh, the truth yeah. comes out. <laughs> and that is how you have nursing stuff against you. Um, f- final question from the, from the list. Uh, what do you like the least about your job and how do you manage that? Meetings. Meetings. I mean, I think once you are a consultant and you start taking on different kinds of roles in your place of work, invariably, I think there's going to be some administration, some coordination, some leadership, some people management, and uh, it always requires meetings and paperwork. Um, and yeah, not my favorite. What Are, are there specific meetings that are you... Or just all meetings, <laughs> every meeting. 
<laughs> you seem like you don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> Would you be implicated <laughs> in any way? Not at all. Not at all. I think the thing with meetings is that no one in that room wants to be there. Yeah. <laughs> and yet yeah. everyone is there and they have to be punctual. And yeah. No, I mean, look, uh, there's a huge variety, obviously, when it comes to meetings. But, it, you know, a meeting where we say we have to accomplish this task today. Uh, these are the decisions we have to make. That's a good meeting. And that is worth bringing people together to discuss sure. and make a decision, mm. um, which now we can do on Zoom, which I think is a great option because I'd much rather have a meeting <laughs> in, my, in my house, <laughs> in my dining room, uh, than in the hospital. Your least favorite part, Art? Um, I, I, would, I would say there's a, there are two things that come immediately to mind. One is um, having to deal with non-clinical administrators who have no stake in the decisions that they're making, but that affect me very directly and patient care very directly. I can just, so th I, I feel, I, I think it's so funny. So we have like Neil and Emma on that side of the table who are like Neil's less clinically experienced. Emma's not really, doesn't have the clinical less. experience. And then like, as soon as, even when you said non-clinical, I was just, I just, I just knew I completely, I resonated <laughs> with it. And then Emma's got this face right now. It's like, what are you talking about? I'm so confused. Yeah, give me I don't an example. Tell me more. <laughs> no, I just mean, you know, people perhaps with business degrees or, or other non clinical degrees who are making decisions that affect how clinical work is done, mm. but don't have to live with the consequences of those decisions. Um, let's, let's, let's get some examples. Because yeah, I can yeah. imagine yeah. some things, but... This is, this is actually, I think, a really important point because it's, pretty, it's a pretty big part of the medical system, actually, yeah, and it makes yeah. a lot of inefficiencies and in, I think contributes to moral injury in a lot of those ways. And no. a lot of people won't understand because it's so abstract and they, don't, they can't even relate to that. Well, I think, I think one of the reasons why, well, uh, I, I maybe sh I shouldn't say this, not politically correct, but uh, I think one reason why people go into administration, hospital administration, et cetera, is because they don't like clinical work. Mm. Um, mm. They didn't really like dealing with patients and they you know, wanted to deal with bigger picture issues. But one happens oftentimes, not, not always, but... What oftentimes happens is that they are so far removed when they've done all of their training and you know they sort of climb the administrative ladder. Um, when they're in a position to make decisions, they are so far removed from their clinical experience that they no longer remember or appreciate what it's like to be on the front lines mm. and actually never liked it when they were there to begin with usually. So they make decisions and don't have to live with the consequences. Yeah. Um, now, and and one of the... As, well, it's a prevalent model of hospital administration and healthcare administration in general. One of the examples of that tension, which we very frequently come across, is per purse string issues, you know, money issues. So a department, a clinical department has identified a gap or a, an unmet need. They apply to the administration to say, hey, we need some resource to get this done because our patients are not getting this and the administration doesn't have that same imperative and I I know from the other side I, I can understand from the other side the the administration has said here's your budget divvy it up and you decide what the priorities are and everybody in the in the hospital wants a piece of that yeah. pie mm -hmm. and they have to make those decisions um, but why they have to make those decisions as opposed to yeah and but it's also not just financial though 
um, you know, their, their key performance indicators uh, and their goals are oftentimes not particularly well aligned with frontline clinicians. They are oftentimes... Obstructive, even. Well, sometimes they're just obsessed with throughput as opposed to quality. Yeah. And so, you know, they can look at numbers and they like to talk about numbers and things, but they actually don't appreciate and understand what it's like on the front lines. When you're trying to deliver care that you know perhaps is substandard, and there's where the moral injury comes in, because it's very difficult to convince people who, don't, who aren't clinical or don't have any clinical memory what it's like to to be in that situation. Mm. Um, and I think there's actually even further downstream consequences of that. For example, there's so many people in the public that view doctors in such a twisted way. They don't understand that actually doctors are out there. They, they, they do want to actually explain it properly to the patient. They do want to spend the time. They want to provide that quality. Like we're very aware of what needs to be done, the gold standard. And we, we are trying to do that, it's actually these types of barriers and these KPIs that are being measured that aren't really well aligned that are systematically stopping it from occurring. So, you know, both the patient and the practitioner are both dissatisfied with the quality of how that mm -hmm. interaction, and people will just think that's how our doctors don't care. They, they mm. just want to, you know, get in and out. I mean, if I can be, because there's lots that plays into that, and if I can be honest for a moment about that, I mean, there is a, there is a human nature as well about work, and work ethic and there is something about you know doing less for the same you know for, for for the incentives that are that are there and so there's something about the incentives it's also a system thing but it's not like evil management you know virtuous doctors who always <laughs> want to do the right thing there's also lazy minded doctors which is most of us who if given the right incentives will take shortcuts mm. Right. So mm -hmm. we want to align those incentives so that we're forcing our minds to do the right things and the right thinking and the right communications. Mm. I actually want to make a little comment about that is um, I re remember the probably three month period of time where I went from the mentality of sort of a student just looking at quality of the work and the care that was being given to one where I really started caring about my throughput and my performance and trying to see more patients in a shorter period of time. Like if I'm running a clinic and just, I just want, you know, I need to get these people through so I can sort of finish. And there is a sort of sense for, for me, what catalyzed that transition change was actually a sense of kind of pride at my efficiency and performance of being able to see patients in a shorter period of time, get those two open-ended questions and closed end five down straight to, you know, a short list of differentials and just being able to do that so systematically and formu formulaically. And that efficiency, in my experience, was actually, you know, that was praise. People will say like, wow, you're so, you, that, you're, you're good. That was good. But, but that's the key. I mean, you're doing that because there's a reward for that kind of behavior. Yeah. And it could be all internal because there's something about efficiency and quickness and, and goodness, you know. I'm, I'm so experienced and so practiced at this that i can i can just do it like you know easily and quickly but some of that incentive is always obviously and that reward is obviously coming from the culture that you're that you're working in and good is quick is good as opposed to good is good mm. yeah yeah 
Anyway, uh, I think that's all well, the time that we have for this. There's really amazing discussions. Uh, and we are going to move on to uh, the interview section where we've just got a little bit more about just um, individually, Art and Nick, their personal experiences and their stories going into it. If you want to learn a little bit more about them, um, which I think is going to be even more interesting, check it out on our YouTube. But thanks for watching and we'll or listening. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Subcut. If you guys have any suggestions for content, please make sure you send it through. You can get in touch and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or find us on our website at jttmed.com slash subcut. Subcut is a podcast brought to you by JTT. If you or anyone you know is interested in a career in medicine, make sure to get in touch and check us out at jttmed.com.